Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. A warning before we get into this conversation you're about to hear, there is a little bit of talk about sex and also some talk about mermaid genitals. That's all. Just a heads up. It's a weird email to have to send to Standards and Practices, but we're grateful to them for fielding it. So anyway, the other day, I saw this movie called The Lighthouse. It's about these two men on an island, two very old-timey sailor men living in New England in the late 1800s. One of the men is old. The other is young. The whole film is in black and white. The wind is howling outside. The older man, played by Willem Dafoe, doesn't really like the younger one. Younger one is played by Robert Pattinson. The two of them drink a lot. Somewhere off the shore, there is a mermaid. A storm comes. There are tentacles. And the two men slowly lose their sanity. That basically is the gist of The Lighthouse. It is a strange, disturbing, intense, brilliant film. It lives with you. I've been living with it since I saw it. Robert Eggers, my guest, directed the film. He wrote the script with his brother Max. Before The Lighthouse, Eggers wrote and directed The Witch, another disturbing, brilliant film set in old New England. Here's a clip from The Lighthouse. In this scene, Defoe's character... Thomas lectures Ephraim, played by Pattinson, about how he performs his duties. I mopped and swept twice over. Ye lion dog. I swept them. Tis begrimed and bedabbled. Unwiped, unwashed, and disdained. Get some kind of purr out of molesting me. Come now. I already says. How dare ye contradict me, ye dog? Now look here. I ain't never intended to be no housewife nor slave in taking this job. And it ain't right. These lodges is more ramshackle than any shanty boys camp I ever seen. The Queen of England's old fancy housekeeper couldn't even done no better than what I done. Because I tell you, I scrubbed this here place twice over. And I say you did nothing of the sort. And I say you swab it again and you swab it proper like this time. And you'll be swabbing it ten times more after that. Robert Eggers, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Uh, that you know, Willem just—he's he's just about to get going. <laughs> we we got the clips. We got the other option was uh, sneaking into the movie theater with a directional microphone, right? <laughs> so, I guess the idea for this film to use started with like almost like an atmospheric feeling. Yeah, I tend to think, I mean, not always, but I tend to have the atmosphere before the movie. The atmosphere and and some images sort of get things going. My brother, who wrote this with me, was working on a screenplay that was a uh, a ghost story in a lighthouse. It was different than this. But when he said ghost story in a lighthouse, I pictured this black and white, crusty, dusty, rusty, musty atmosphere. A a movie in a boxy aspect ratio with stumpy clay pipes and facial hair almost as extravagant as yours. (laughs) (laughs) All of those key elements of the film. Yeah. 
It is really striking. Like I, I went to see the movie at you know a fancy movie theater in Hollywood, and I walked in just as it was transitioning from you know logos into the movie, and it really feels shocking to look at a screen and in a movie theater and see not only black and white cinematography, but the aspect ratio, where this film is almost square. Correct. It looks square to one's eye being used to seeing CinemaScope. You know, if, if you watch a movie in one three three, like which some people might call full screen, that seems wide <laughs> compared to what we're doing. This is a rare aspect ratio from the early sound era, and it's extra boxy, but it's very helpful for shooting vertical objects like lighthouse towers and conveying cramped interiors and um, claustrophobic spaces. And it's great. It's a great format for close-ups. That's what that's what struck me immediately. Like faces take up almost the entire screen in a way that you can't do in a wider screen. No. And why would you want all that flab on, on either side of two of the greatest faces uh, that have ever been born and, and four of the sharpest cheekbones uh you know i'm doing press with these guys and like and i'm not like a, a big dude but i feel like i look like a like a chubby chubby chipmunk in between these two guys uh and spoiler alert, alert the two other faces in this movie are quite uh impressive as well um nobody wanted to die Willem Dafoe's mustache. No one wanted to bleach it out. He's not. He's he he's not very gray. We want him to look grayer, and so that meant bleaching out his his mustache. And and people were afraid of burning uh, Dafoe's flesh in Halifax for hairdresser insurance reasons. Indeed, and um, and so I, I said, there's got to be some hipster barbershop that has you know blue mustaches and stuff. Uh, and Rob Cotterill, the first AD, recommended this bar- barbershop, and we went there, and I saw the barber, Logan Hawks, and said to myself, this is our lumberjack. And so I said, uh, you know, hi, nice to meet you. Would you like to punch Robert Pattinson in the face? <laughs> and and he, he was uh, happy to do so. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of natural misery in the film. There's a brutal extended storm. And there are a lot of exteriors in that situation. You shot this film in Nova Scotia uh, at at a coastal area where you built a lighthouse that was like as close as you can get to a brutal storm-battered remote island uh, while still bringing film equipment to it and going home to go sleep somewhere at night. Um, True. (laughs) True. It's all true. (laughs) But how much of that brutality, like natural brutality that we see on screen was something that you had to deal with while you were also lugging around these film lenses from the 1930s and stuff. You know, most of the worst weather in the movie is is real. We had rain machines and we had wind machines. And so if it was gloomy, uh, we could do a scene with light rain with the, with the wind machines or whatever. Most of the really extreme stuff is real. I mean, obviously, there's a scene where Rob Pattinson's, like, pulling a, a, a lifeboat out of a boathouse, like, and, and there's giant waves, like, crashing at him. Like, that can't be done for real, or we lose Robert Pattinson to a riptide, and that's not a good idea. 
But um, I'm not complaining, but it is not easy to shoot a movie in gale force winds and the pouring rain, uh, you know, with where, where it's just above or below freezing on a rock in the Atlantic. You, you are not going to move quickly. You, your camera gear is going to break down. Uh, but that's what we needed to shoot this movie. You know, uh, we needed this terrible weather to tell the story. So there's no other option but to go out and and do it. I don't mind the cold. I like the cold. I've, I've been in much more extreme uh, temperatures on the thermometer, but I've never felt colder than I have on Cape Forshoe because the wind just, you're never dry and the wind never stops. Like even that one nice blue sky, it was still... <laughs> <laughs> miserably windy and everyone was up for it the crew was up for it they know you know these nova scotia crew i mean they're they're hardy and they get it robin willem knew what they signed up for but you know again we're not complaining but if the rain's not reading in your close-up and you have to then be sprayed in the face with a fire hose so the ra- rain reads in your close-up like it's not pleasant but it informs the performance that's for sure you know, spoiler alert, alert, if you're buried alive in dirt and made to eat it, like, that's not pleasant, but you know what you signed up for. <laughs> Both this movie and uh, your previous movie, The Witch, have a lot of historical detail in them, um, especially in the production design. There's just a lot of real stuff. And I wonder what the value of real stuff is in the context of two stories that have a lot of mystical and fairy tale qualities to them. I mean, I think that you've answered the question yourself. One could say if if the setting, the more realistic and grounded the setting is, the easier it is to believe in a, in a mermaid or a, or a sea monster or a witch or, or or whatever. I also just like doing it like that. Certainly having period accurate design does not equal good design but i i prefer it i also because i'm want really want to put you in a time machine if if i'm if i'm saying that our goal is accuracy it's always of course by the way it's always going to be an interpretation cuz like you know we didn't have access to a time machine but but if if all of my collaborators know like historical accuracy is is the high bar we're we're reaching for then choices are made for you and you're not laboring over like is this lapel the right lapel to convey this character and because you're not wasting time with those things you ha- you can put more and more and more and more and more details in there to create a more specific atmosphere and and i just and i you know i'm i'm researching as a means to an end but i also just enjoy the act of research i like learning about how people used to live and and i love when you think, man, these people are so crazy. How could they possibly think like this? And then all of a sudden, reading a little more and opening the door into their heads and realizing, oh, I see why. And if I lived then, that's how I would think too. And you want to know what else? Like, I can see how aspects of that still exist today. And then it's my job as a storyteller to try to make that relevant. And it, of course, I don't try to make it relevant. I, you know, like I actually just try to stay in their heads, but I am in, somehow influenced by the zeitgeist and it, and it comes, it comes out. I mean, and I hope, I mean, you know, certainly if only people who lived in the 1630s enjoy the witch and only people who lived in the 1890s could enjoy the 
the lighthouse, I'd have a, a problem. Narrow target market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could do it maybe at Hollywood Forever. Yeah, yeah, lot, lots of graveyard screenings. <laughs> I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest is the director Robert Eggers. His newest film, The Lighthouse, is in theaters now. Did you imagine the way when you first thought of the like feeling of the film, uh, the way that two men on an island who live inside a phallus would like how their sexuality would color the entirety of their experience in the, in the film? It wasn't like that very first moment of inspiration, but but certainly, you know, within the first week of thinking about it. Yeah, um, that that's going to be a big part of it. It freaked me out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of stuff in your movie. I'm not against it. I'm not saying I'm against it. I'm just saying, like, it was... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, when you're stuck in a situation like that, there's a lot of, of erotic energy with nowhere to go. And so there's violence and fantasy and alcoholism it goes everywhere <laughs> yeah i mean it's like um i don't know what the right metaphor is i was gonna say squeezing a balloon but it's like pressing a liquid and it and it gets into the seams you yeah know for I mean? sure yeah it's like smashing a gull to death against a sister <laughs> what, what's one of the really interesting things to me about the tone of the movie is that there are elements that are signposted like a fairy tale. You know, like in a fairy tale, you know what the roughly what the witch represents and that mm-hmm. she's that a witch is bad news and you know for the kids and you know you know what rosy cheeks mean and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Like uh, you mentioned there's this there's a seagull bashed against a cistern. That is preceded by uh, a declaration that uh, killing a seabird is bad luck for a sailor. Mm-hmm. And so there are these elements that are that have that feeling, that mm-hmm. have that feeling of like, this is a machine that's built on centuries or thousands of years of how human brains work. And we're just, we're acknowledging them and showing them. There are also a lot of things that are very differently presented, you know, much more subtly presented. And I wonder, like, how do you decide what to leave open and what to give the quality of, you know, of myth? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I guess it's just to give a bad answer. It's kind of by instinct, but it's also by trial and error. I mean, we, you know, there are the movies very ambiguous on purpose to use the old like filmmaker cliche, I'm looking to provoke questions more than to provide answers, right. which is just the case with this kind of movie. But do you like film answers that you decide are too answery and leave them out? Yeah. I mean, you have to, my brother and I had to answer, have these questions answered for ourselves to, to, to write this thing and to have control over it. Otherwise, it's just an unwieldy beast that, that you don't have control over. It could work out. But it could just feel like complete nonsense if you don't have uh, of the the control over it. So yeah, certainly there were versions that were too on on the nose overall. Uh, but we needed to kind of situate ourselves with with Robert Pattinson's character and kind of go mad with him. So that was a, a good way to kind of figure out where we needed to throw up stumbling blocks and, and uh, for for the for the audience as well. We'll finish up with Robert Eggers after a quick break. 
still to come. He's made two disturbing, scary films. I know that I was scared by The Lighthouse. I'll ask Robert Eggers what he's afraid of. Stay tuned. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee, so he went to ZipRecruiter, posted his job, and found the right person in just a few days. Find out why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com slash bullseye. B-U-L-L-S-E-Y-E. We are so thrilled at your interest in attending Hieronymus Wiggenstaff's School for Heroism and Villainy. Wiggenstaff's beautiful campus boasts state-of-the-art facilities and instructors with real-world experience. We are also proud to say that our alumni have gone on to be professional heroes and villains in the most renowned kingdoms in the world. But of course, you are not applying to the main school, are you? You're applying for our sidekick and henchperson annex. You will still benefit from the school's amazing campus, and you'll have a lifetime of steady employment. Of course, there's no guarantee how long that lifetime will be. Join the McElroys as they return to Dungeons & Dragons with The Adventure Zone Graduation, every other Thursday on Maximum Fun, or wherever podcasts are found. Hey, everybody. Uh, So... Here's something unusual. Uh, if you've listened to Bullseye for a while, you might have heard of a comic named Chris Garcia. In 2016, we ran one of his sets as part of our Best Comedy of the Year special. He's got a brand new podcast called Scattered. So if you know Chris's comedy at all, you know that he does a lot of material about his father. But his father died a couple of years ago. And Chris realized that there was a lot that he himself didn't know about the man who raised him. His dad had a lot of secrets about his last years in Cuba, about his life in America, and he took those secrets to the grave. So now Chris is trying to dig up the truth and find out what happened. You can check it out. It's called Scattered from WNYC Studios. Best of luck to Chris Garcia. Funny guy, good guy, available wherever you get your podcasts. The past decade saw a lot of changes in the way music is made, shared, and experienced. Social media blew up, genres blurred together, and Beyonce dominated nearly everything. I'm Robin Hilton. Join NPR Music as we look back at the 2010s, its defining trends and moments. Listen to new episodes twice a week on All Songs Considered from NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Robert Eggers, directed and co-wrote the new film, The Lighthouse. It's a brilliant, claustrophobic descent into madness. It tells the story of two men living on a remote island off the main coast. Let's get back to my conversation with Eggers. I think Robert Pattinson's character is the, you know, the main character in the film. But as it goes on, it feels like we see the world less and less through his eyes. Like at the beginning, it feels very explicitly like... It is a story told from his perspective, a guy who, you know, the new guy in town, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And as time goes on, that changes. What do you do as a director to make that happen for the audience? It's just you. It's all it's all about camera placement. That's it. That's the end of it. 
you know, if you want to really be engaged with like, you know, I mean, this is, you know, like, by the way, some of these, these ideas are, of course, subjective, you know, like, I think that there are some things that Eisenstein and, and Hitchcock and John Ford uh, and Spielberg have like proved, but there's other things that I think are more subjective. But, uh, but I would say if the scenes from Rob's perspective and it, and it's shot, reverse shot, uh, that, you, you know, we might have Rob's shoulder in Willem's shot. But if I was going to do a scene where it's both over the shoulder, uh, um, shot, reverse shot, then it feels more balanced, you know, and even if they're close-ups that are framed the same, uh, and, and they're, and they're, and nobody's dirty, like just the amount of time we spend on Rob can make it feel like it's more his scene. I mean, Defoe's sea spell, where he has an unbroken take for like two and a half minutes where he doesn't blink, that is the same take that he began, he begins the speech with. Like, so it was really more like three minutes of him killing it and not blinking. But we had to cut to Rob to see Rob's reaction because we needed to like be with Rob in that moment. So... I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I said some things. Yeah. Um, how do you decide what uh, mermaid looks like? So in the Middle Ages and in, in, in the Renaissance, mermaids generally had a split tail. You may recognize that shape from the Starbucks cup mermaid. That split tail, they could perform their function as anima figures to their male fantasizers. So they could, you know... In, it was in, obvious the way that it worked. Yeah. In other words, if you have legs, there you can have a between the legs. Indeed, yeah. And, yeah, but Victorian mermaids, you know, uh, like the Victorians did away with that, obviously, uh, in, a, in a very Victorian fashion. Uh, and so that single-tail mermaid becomes the archetypal mermaid shape of today. By the way, there are single-tail mermaids also, like like earlier than the 19th century, but whatever. But that's that was, it was certainly solidified then. But we needed to have uh, she needed to have genitals. So um, we I looked at shark genitals. I started looking at different things like oysters and just different kind of sea life that look labial, but. Uh, but the the shark genitals are are nice because they look a little bit human, but not really. And then we also gave her some pelvic fins that that I that I think helped that that design. The paint job the on her tail was really beautiful. Like it's one of the few things that you actually that is is not quite as impressive in in, in black and white because she really looked like a North Atlantic mermaid and not a tropical mermaid, you know. And then of course Valeria herself you know, has incredibly, incredibly wide set eyes that, that seem, you know, uh, marine-like. It reminded me of um, Peter Pan. I read Peter Pan in eighth grade in class. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I remember having the strongest reaction to was there's a part where they go to meet the mermaids. Mm -hmm. And the threatening quality of the mermaids is their adult sexuality, mm -hmm. which, you know, obviously in a story about coming of age or not coming of age is like really scary. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like I am not used to seeing feminine sexual imagery 
that has that in film that has that scariness to it. Like usually it's just straight up male gaze, lustful, whatever. And like the threatening quality of the mermaid sexuality really threw me for a loop. Well, I'm glad. (laughs) I'm glad that was, that was the intention. Do you remember ever feeling that level of fear or threat about sexuality, like as an adolescent or something? I mean, um, I watched Conan the Barbarian like far too young uh, with, you know, my mom present. And she made me close my eyes uh, when Conan's like having sex with the witch and the sounds of that were like as a little kid were quite uh, terrifying. I also remember like as a little kid, like thinking Madonna's sexuality was like very scary as a little kid. Um, Obviously like women's power and sexuality has like been threatening to men throughout the ages uh, we probably wouldn't have like this patriarchal society if it wasn't the case. Uh, so I think, you know, this movie is through the eyes of two men, mostly one man that were alive in the 19th century. So like having the the powerful female character be like powerful through her sexuality is is complicated in today's culture because you don't want to say like that is female power uh but it is an aspect of it and it is definitely you know the mermaid begins literally as an object literally she's a scrimshaw carving of a mermaid but then that object becomes so sexualized and threatening that like the object of desire then becomes more powerful than robert pattinson's character yeah, and I mean, these these characters are also deeply troubled and deeply troubling. Like, there's no question whether one of them and their attitude toward their situation represents your authorial voice or anything like that. No, of course not. Uh, but you, one needs to be aware of what they're putting out into the world. Like, I am not ever going to whitewash history. You know, if I, if this thing actually gets made, my Viking movie that got leaked last week... Like, the Vikings did a lot of stuff that isn't good. (laughs) Yeah, horrible, Uh, horrible You know, but if I'm going to be photographing that, I really need to be thinking about, like, why and how I'm doing it. Because you have a responsibility to the culture that you live in with about what you're putting out there. I'm not saying I believe in censorship, but I still think, you know, you can be responsible and should be. You're a New Englander. You were can't can't be helped. Yeah, and your first two films were very New Englandy films, films set in particular things about New England. Are there things about New England that someone who isn't from there might not understand or might you know misunderstand? I don't know. I mean, it's it's like I'm sure that there's plenty of New Englanders who like the Red Sox and the Bruins and a lobster roll and can just kind of get on with it. But I, I, I <laughs> w- doing press for these movies, I'm, I'm constantly running into fellow 
New Englanders who felt like New England was a, a, a scary, weird, strange, folkloric place full of like austere, mean people. <laughs> and uh, there's more old stuff there. There's more old white people stuff. It's where white Anglo-Protestant culture has been around for the longest in the U.S. And so there's old dilapidated white Anglo-Protestant architecture and field markers and cemeteries in the woods and um, and ghosts, question mark? I mean, <laughs> you, you can't, like, if you find a, a family burial plot from the 18th century in, in the woods behind your house as a kid, like, tell me you're not going to think about like the people who were buried there and what they're doing now. My, my grandpa lived in a house from uh, 1740. I mean, all, you know, obviously like the, the romance of New England collaborative architecture is in, in both of my movies, but it tells a, a story when you, when you see it and when you grow up around it. Did you ever read this uh, children's book called The Oxcart Man? Of course. By Donald Hall? Yeah. So that book, which is about essentially the year of a farmer in New England in, I guess, probably the early 19th century or something like that. Yeah, something like that. It's a spectacularly beautiful book. And I read it as a kid, and I've read it with my own kids. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to go out and buy it after this. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great... I haven't thought about it in a long time. It's such a beautiful book. And, like, I remember as a kid growing up in on the West Coast, there are those beautiful, like apple cider, autumn leaves feelings that one associates with New England. Absolutely. But there's also a kind of awareness of the severity of the situation that is quite discomforting Yeah, when you're a kid. Like, it is very easy to see around the edges of this, like, pain and disaster and cold... And those things. Yeah. It's something that, you know, there's other, you know, this is weird things about San Francisco and Los Angeles, the places sure. I've lived, but like they are very different. Yeah. You know, and, and the other thing that's, it's like weird because you have all this history, but the folk culture is not like alive the same way that it is in the South or in, in the West. You know, people don't wear Puritan hats, but but people wear cowboy hats, right? <laughs> you know, so you so on like on the one hand, like it's everywhere, but on the other hand, you like you're also kind of look if you're someone like me, you're kind of looking for it, and it takes some some effort to find it. And both of these movies are me kind of communing with the folk culture of my region. You know, there's a there is a slight. Someone asked me if there is a preservationist quality, which I didn't really think about. But yeah, sure. Like I'm, you know, I'm digging into lost coastal Maine dialects and capturing them in a way that might survive for a little while. Well, I don't know. What do we have like 20 years before we're all underwater? But you know, and and then when when in the post-apocalyptic world. Uh, when people are doing street theater around garbage fires, it'll all be, you know, uh, tales from the Avengers uh, as, as street theater or or even weirder people doing like like pretending to open packages of things that they pretended to have bought uh, around the around the garbage fire theater. So you're an adult man and 
you know, you've made two films. My wife disagrees with you. Okay. <laughs> you've made two films, one of which is, I think, uh, probably a horror film, and one of which is not a horror film, but deeply discomforting. And I wonder what you, as an adult man, are irrationally afraid of. I'm not irrationally afraid of much, to be frank. I need solitude. I really do. I need a lot of solitude, but I also need uh, like a lot of family and and some and some parties. And being alone is very scary to me. I, I am a bit claustrophobic. I'm a bit claustrophobic right now in this padded cell. <laughs> um, uh, but I think more than anything, like I, you know, I don't want to go mad. Which you know, obviously, you know, and and you can see both these movies being interested in like in in the occult and stuff. You come across figures who are interested in it, and then like end up believing it, and then get lost in it. So that that scares me. Is it is the fear of madness about like losing control of your own life? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's about yeah. It's about well, it's about losing your yourself. You know, that's you know, and that's what's fun about reading Poe and and Mackin and and M R James and you know that's uh, the fun of of this. It's the fun of you know if if you find it fun. It's the fun of Lost Highway. Uh, but sometimes, you know, it's good to watch Mary Poppins. I mean, Mary Poppins is kind of intense, too. <laughs> well, uh... I, it has a more genial affect. I, I mean, I would take Mary Poppins... It's still a weird, uh, like, magical power control fantasy. I, I would take Mary Poppins over, like, the, the mystery man from Lost Highway any day. <laughs> Well, um, Robert Eggers, I'm so grateful that you came here to talk about your work and this amazing, amazing movie. And there's like, there's 20,000 things that I would love to ask you about, but but we're, you'll have to come back another time so we can talk about those things. Okay. Thanks. Robert Eggers, The Lighthouse is an absolutely, spectacularly compelling film. I was awed buy it. Not usually my kind of thing, I have to say. Uh, but I was so happy that I watched it. I hope you'll watch it. It's playing in theaters now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org, world headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Uh, if you're wondering, there's a woman who makes quesadillas at 7th and Alvarado. Highly recommended by our staff. I got to get over there. I had a quesadilla for lunch, but I had a quesadilla El Pastor from a uh, taco truck a few blocks away. Maybe I should have gone to the quesadilla lady. Show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. I'm going to be honest. I saw a picture of Kevin's quesadilla, my producer Kevin's quesadilla, he had yesterday. It looked good. Maybe some pickled red onions in there, looked like. Anyway, our producer, Kevin Ferguson, aforementioned. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, who's also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, a great band from England. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And I guess that's about it. Just remember. 
All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.